0: Welcome to The Big Self Show. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. I can't wait for you to hear my conversation with Rob Cross and Karen Dillon on today's episode. But before we do, I just want to say... Thank you for tuning in and welcome to season five. It's actually episode 122. So whether you've been a follower of our podcast since it emerged during the pandemic of 2020 or you're a first time listener, we're so glad to have you. And we're excited to kick off this season with a conversation on groundbreaking research or at least compelling research that's been put together for us in a smart and coherent way on the subject of stress. You know, stress, broadly speaking, may be what it all comes down to, whether we're talking about workplace culture, healthy leadership, getting things done effectively, mindfulness, self-awareness, or even personal development and growth. What we're doing, what we're trying to do is navigate this exciting time to be alive, this world of endless possibilities and endless ways of being in the world and tons of information in ways that create meaning, happiness, purpose, joy, if you will, and without the stress. Yes, it is stress that seems to hound us. Stress is on the rise. It's in the headlines every day. And to that purpose, we wanted to kick off this episode with the micro stress effect. Rob Cross is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College, and he's a co-founder and director of The Connected Commons, which is a consortium of more than 150 leading organizations. And he has been studying the underlying networks of relationships within effective organizations and these collaborative practices with high performers for more than two decades now. And co-author Karen Dillon is an author and former editor at Harvard Business Review. She's also co-written three books with Clayton Christensen, including the New York Times bestseller, How Will You Measure Your Life? So Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, welcome to The Big Self Show. All right. Thank, Thank you so much you. for so having me. So glad us. to
1: be here, Chad.
0: It is outstanding to have you. We're so excited. Congratulations on the very recent release of the Micro Stress Effect. Thank you very much. Yeah, I hope that you guys, have you been um, throwing a party and having a big celebration?
2: We have been. It takes uh, takes quite a bit. It takes a whole village to produce a book and, and get it out there. So there's been a lot of people that we've been super appreciative with.
0: And this book in particular is such a contribution to the field. Just a tiny bit of what I was so impressed by just by even leading up to being able to talk to you all and, and checking out the book. It's frightening that stress can be hitting us and we and be in us and be having a, this effect and we don't even feel it. And so the micro stress effect gives us so many fascinating data points on helping to recognize it in the first place. Can you all just start off, help our audience understand a little bit more about what is microstress?
1: Microstress is a word that we came up with to describe something that we think people didn't have the language to articulate it. it, They're tiny moments of stress that are caused in what are otherwise routine interactions with people in your personal and professional life that are so brief and happen so routinely baked into your day that your brain almost doesn't register that they happened. Your body does, but your brain doesn't, but whose Mm. whole cumulatively is enormous. So micro stress happens quickly. It happens in interactions with people that were just around every day and not because of toxic reasons, just because of the routine nature of the interactions, um, but it adds up to something really significant so when you say how is it different from stress or let's call it macro stress so we have language to talk about stress in that form we, we know how to have empathy we know what happens when there are really life significant life events someone loses a job or a health issue we know how to seek help for that we know how to talk about it we get empathy for that we register it our bodies register it but with micro stress because it happens so quickly and so routinely any individual microstress, any individual interaction with another person is not overwhelming. It can be handled, it can be navigated, but we never have one. We have dozens of them in a given day. So the key point is they add up in a way that is actually taking a toll on our bodies. But as you say, the brain almost doesn't register it. It happens so briefly, it doesn't imprint on your frontal lobe in the same way. So micro stress is cumulatively enormous and we almost don't know what's happening.
0: I think you just said a little bit about where it comes from, Mm. but how can we recognize it?
2: Well, I think there are warning signs that start to, you know, emerge for people if you become entirely reactive, right? With all your day, from the second you wake up to the second you're in bed, you're reactive in a a posture like that. That's Mm -hmm. not good, right? If you're if you're snapping, if you find yourself not thinking about what do I want to be doing, you know, being in more creative moments like that, uh, that's not good. And usually, it's this accumulation, right, of, of things around it. Most people in our research actually would describe kind of three, five, eight year stretches in their lives where they just been really running hard in a certain system, right, for an organization and uh, whatever it may be, and they would just wake up one day and go, how did I get here? You know, and it was never one big thing. It wasn't a health scare. It wasn't a big crisis. It was this accumulation of the small that uh, that crept up on people. So, you know, what what we suggest is the chapter five in the book, kind of the, the first part of it is really walking through these 14 micro stresses. We did hundreds of interviews, wildly successful people to see where they were, what they were, right, what they looked like in people's lives. Um, and one really easy way to kind of go through and think about that is look at that table and go through it three times for us. You know, there's, there's 14 micro stresses, and then there's a series of common sources of this stress across the top. Uh, you know, whether and, it's, a, by uh,
0: the way, I want to say those are super helpful. There's a table laid out for it and mm-hmm. it's very specific these There are different categories, capacity draining, micro-stresses, emotion depleting, and identity challenging. And seeing those is really helpful to identify them.
2: Most people, and this is one of the joys of doing interview-based work, you know, you do hundreds of these interviews and eventually you get to everybody's going to go, oh yeah, <laughs> I got that going on, you know, in my life like that. And it's going to be uh, pretty apparent pretty quickly. And then the key for us um, is to really go through and say, where do you have two, three, four of these that are systemic enough in your life that you should be adapting the interaction, right? And, mm-hmm. and put an X in those boxes, not 10 or 12 people want to go there because we can do that. There, there's so much around us, but three or four that you can take action on. And that matters because we know the negative interactions have about three to five times the positive do in our lives, right? So if we can shape those, uh, it has a has a pretty profound effect. Uh, and there's some other things with that table, but we're really focused on using it to see how do you isolate out some of these that you can do something about and do it? How do you stop causing some of these? Because we know the stress we cause boomerangs back on us in unanticipated ways. And then where are a couple that you can kind of rise above, right? You've just gotten down in the weeds and something that in the scope of life doesn't, doesn't really matter. Matter that much, so that's one way of of making this what feels like a sea around mm-hmm. us of things constantly coming at us, getting it really down into some tactics uh, and things that people can concretely take action on.
0: You know, it strikes me that a lot of the people that get stressed are some of the very people that have a a, a mood or a, an, a you know want are they ambitious? They want to do things, just mm-hmm. like a lot of times the very people that burn out are hardworking high achieving in helping professions so so how what was what did your research yield for you all when it came to just how is saying yes to too much and and powering through creating more
2: micro stress i think for many very successful people, right, you're taught to just overcome, right? And that's what they do, right? Over and over and over again. And the the problem with micro stress is it's not any one of these in isolation. You'd look at that and go, that's no big deal, right? It's it's you you sense misalignment with a colleague, you know, and you know you have to resolve that and you're wondering, how am I going to do that? You see a team member that needs to be coached for the third time and you're going, okay, how am I going to do that? And keep their engagement. And immediately you get a text from a child and you can't tell if it's something serious or they're over it in 10 seconds and you're worrying about it for three hours and two seconds after that, your boss walks in and changes the scope of your project. You know what I mean? And, and people, you know, you're not in your head like, yeah, that just happened today. Yeah. <laughs> and most a lot of it just sounded
0: like was, a little it, slice of my life, right? Right,
2: <laughs> It's like that. And, and, you know, to Karen's point, like none of those look to a successful person or to our brains. None of those look insurmountable. You just kind of go through one by one. The problem is we are now in a hyperconnect world where the volume, velocity, and diversity of those interactions are coming at us in a way that um, we've never experienced before, right? And it's creating a sense of stress, especially pre-pandemic, but going through the pandemic that's that's really unprecedented in, in very, very specific ways.
0: That is what I'm curious about. Like, the, your data, I'm sure, wasn't just from the past three years. You probably have been putting together data from I don't know how how far back, but so are we more stressed or or less stressed now coming out of the, the pandemic?
2: Yeah, I'll take a first shot and then pass it to Karen. I think what, okay. what, we're, what we're seeing um, leading up to the pandemic, one is we've seen the collaborative intensity of work uh, really explode in most places for about a decade now. And it's a product of a whole bunch of things, right? Delayering all these technologies, one firm culture approaches, agile talent marketplaces, you name it, right? It's putting work into connectivity in a much, much greater way. So that's increasing all the opportunities for stress to come at us in different Mm. ways, both at work and at home. Um, And then you go through the pandemic, and what we saw is work got more fractured in different ways. So instead of eight one-hour meetings pre-pandemic, somebody came up with the idea of a 30-minute meeting, and now we've got 16 30-minute meetings, and we're exhausted by it, right? We're more intense in the 30 minutes. We're switching across things more rapidly. We end the day with a to-do list with 16 meetings, not eight. And we see that in general, people are working five to eight hours more a week earlier into the morning, deeper into the night um, as we've kind of moved through the pandemic. So the stress is legitimately higher. And then what we've also seen is the, the things that we use to cope. Right. With that stress, the book clubs, the tennis groups, those music associations we belong with, all those kind of dissipated with social distancing. Right, so we've seen this kind of dual pinch point, if you will, that the stress is legitimately risen. This form of stress has risen. And then the coping mechanisms have kind of fallen away at the at the same time.
0: OK, so. It's complex, but I hear that we should have less meetings. Maybe that should—that's your next book. That could be <laughs> less meetings. <laughs> and I don't Karen, think anybody do would to... disagree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Karen, we got to add to that.
1: I was just going to say, Rubs right. I, mean, I think there's all kinds of data that tells us we've never been more stressed as a society. But at the same time, as we'll point out in the book, we've also never had more ability to control who, you know, who we who we are, what we do with people, our interactions with other people, how we shape our time. So it, it's a it's a conundrum because we're overwhelmed with stress, micro stress and, and macro stress as well. But we actually do have the ability to shift things and change them. We've just become the frog in the boiling water, right? It's it's creep it's crept up on us a little bit by little mm-hmm. bit, and we don't quite realize how bad it is until it gets to the point where it's not okay anymore Um, and so yes coming out of the pandemic having lost some of the really valuable coping mechanisms um, and adding more and more stress even the boundary between work and home being blurred for most of us you know it used to be that there was a commuting time and now there isn't and it used to be we didn't do every single meeting on zoom so you didn't have to be sort of completely physically there present for every single meeting on when you're sitting in your home it just has changed the kind of intensity of the relationships and as Rob said when you have you know 16 meetings in a day rather than eight, however number that that turns out to be. That means you have 16 opportunities to be misaligned with your colleagues, to have your colleagues maybe just like underperform a little bit on something you're working on together. We've all had the experience of working with someone who did their best, couldn't finish it, can you finish it up? Or because your name's going to be on the top of the list of people who's turning it in or or whatever, you have to go back and check it or do some work. All small things, none of them evil, none of them trying to deliberately do that, but the reality of how quickly and how collaborative we work now has created all kinds of opportunity for microstress. So the combination of things has just been really powerful and not good,
0: yeah. well what what do you guys say to leaders who are managing these t- very teams, helping them deal with with microstress, especially as i I assume there is generally kind of a migration to back to the office or at least kind of hybrid work. Mm-hmm. What you would say
2: to leaders? I think there's a couple of things. So it's 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 heavily focused around uh, ideas for yourself. But what we think has the biggest impact are when you can get these conversations happening in the team. So right now, a lot of the interactions around well-being, they're going to HR, they're going to the leaders, and it's not sufficient, right? Um, and what we really are trying to shift with uh, an app that we put out and some other things that we're building is to create these tools That start to create that discussion in the team and think about Mm -hmm. how do we kind of take down micro stresses that are unnecessary. So I'll give you one very easy one uh, to do is, is uh, the micro stresses. One of the 14 is, is inefficient communication practices, right? And so what the the teams can do is take a blank piece of paper, draw two lines down. and So you have three columns there and the first column say, here's uh, all the ways we're collaborating. And usually it's six to nine modalities people are using. They're surprised by that, but it's email meetings, teams, some instant messaging application, etc. Then on the second column, say here's three norms that we want to use this modality and not it use us. So if it's email, maybe it's we're just using it to confirm agreement. Um, we're not using it to fight over things, right? If it's uh, bullet points versus 10 paragraph texts, stay what you want in the subject line, right? There's all sorts of kind of common norms that make email yes. more effective. Then in the last column, you say, here's the three things we're going to stop doing, right? So maybe it's the unnecessary CCing behavior. Maybe if you have to send it at 10 o'clock at night, because that's the only time you have after the kids go to bed, you send it on a delay, right? You, do, you mm-hmm. do it at 10, but don't send it then. So you get the idea, right? You fill this grid out, takes you know, leader maybe 30, 45 minutes to get norms for each of the modalities, take it in the team and, and say, what do we want to agree to here? Right, what are we going to add, take away? But you have a, an agreement then of how are we using these tools versus them using us. And it takes away tremendous amounts of excess time when somebody's processing a 10 paragraph email and writing back with a 15 paragraph one, you know, or just subtle things like that, that that buy back time. So there's a a tremendous amount leaders can do to kind of embed these ideas and evaluation processes and kind of cultural related things like that, uh, that can have a a really marked impact on the quality of people's lives.
1: That's fantastic. One, yeah, thing to this, sorry, Janet, but I one thing to it, that, that as leaders, we can be really mindful of how much micro stress we're causing people unintentionally. Again, all mm-hmm. microstress in our definition is really never caused by someone trying to be a jerk or trying to be difficult. It's just the the hecticness of, of life and how busy we are and how much we need to collaborate. But as leaders, we can be causing microstress for our team without realizing it. We had um, actually a great example of someone we were interviewing who was in the process of he managed a 60 person team and in the process of doing the performance goals for the next year. And he was really trying to empower them to ask good questions when new assignments, new requirements came their way, working with other parts of the organization, not to say no, not to suddenly become a no culture, but to ask good questions. What resources will I need to get this done? Where does this fit in the priorities list? Do I, can I put something aside to do this? Just so that they could sort of start to think intelligently about the work they were saying yes to without defaulting to yes. And as a kind of joke, he actually did a a trick for, played a trick on them where he, he personally asked them all to do something. Thing with a really unreasonable deadline, it was like you know, can I get this back by Saturday noon? And his goal was to reinforce the point that you're supposed to ask good questions. You're supposed to come back and feel free to just have a quick conversation about that. And almost nobody did. A couple people just completely ignored it, which is the re- response for many of us for overwhelming stuff coming at us. And then one person was actually going to cancel some personal plans, and he quickly came clean. It was I was a test. I was just just trying to reinforce. I want you guys to advocate for yourself even when it comes from me. So as leaders, being mindful of what you're triggering in other people people, um, it will boomerang back on you eventually, you know, those, those, those employees will be rebellious or difficult or ignore you. So you're better off actually trying to be really thoughtful about empowering them to think about it, but also having good conversations and you not unintentionally triggering it for them.
0: I really like that. This, the emphasis on establishing the norms, standards, and procedures that the uh, the the uh, culture is going to operate under that's fantastic and so uh, amongst these maybe there are leaders maybe but the, you call them your 10%ers uh so they about 10% so it's not it's not a uh, overwhelming it's not just 1% thank goodness it's at least 10% <laughs> have mastered the uh the, the navigating the micro stress and And as you say, maintaining just more full and satisfying personal and professional lives. What can we learn from them?
2: Mm. So, you know, what we saw is every interview we went through, these are 90 minute interviews, and usually for the first 10 minutes, and these, every one of these people were really successful, conventionally successful. They were the top performing women or men from leading organizations, right? And so we're, we're getting kind of people that that are conventionally really doing well. Um, and, you know, every every one of them, the first 10 minutes, everything was great, right? Life is great. You know, the facade was up. And then slowly, as we walked into it and got a sense of what's life really like, you know, you see the cracks come in and you start to see by minute 60, 75, most people making decisions on what balls to drop and not what to excel at, you know, in their lives. And some actually even choked up uh, at certain points. What what titled our 10 percenters is they were really unique and they didn't go down that path. They actually stayed positive and kept there. And they were somehow managing to, um, to deliver, you know, exceptional performance results and live a life that was just more fulfilling, you know, generally for them. And, you know, what we found is that they're far more likely to be proactive and not fall into reactive postures. They just had more anchors out around what mattered to them, and they were particularly good at maintaining connections into groups that helped keep perspective in their lives. So one of the big big hallmarks was that they were uh, almost universally likely to have at least two and usually three groups they were an authentic part of uh, outside of their profession. And these could come from any and all walks of life. It could be music, poetry, religion, art, athletics, you know, but those groups um, Mm -hmm. created an identity that helped them push back on work, right? Not do those extra 10 emails because they needed to be doing something that was a Part of their life. And most importantly, it actually put them in a context with very different people. So suddenly they're not hanging out with, say, just university professors or whatever. It's the mailman, the IT executive, the neurosurgeon. And those conversations help you see your problems differently, help you develop friendships, all this stuff that that really matters to kind of keep the um the minutiae life truly where it is as minutiae <laughs> and not kind of escalating in, in different ways. So that was a couple of the things that were um that were pretty impactful about them.
0: Well, I'm really listening. Uh, I'm thinking. I've I've let go of my music, and and it's there is a sometimes a letting go when we're trying to get serious and do lead these successful professional lives. And the message here is no, you. If you want satisfaction, you might want to hold on to these
2: things. Yeah. Super common trajectory for most people. And these, again, were very successful people, right? That's the one thing to keep in mind is they (laughs) they should have it nailed. Um, And what we were seeing is a lot of times any kind of transition, right? Whether it was take a new job or it was get a promotion, pick up a big project. There was a natural tendency to do exactly what you said, to lean in and say, I've got to just get through this stretch and I'll get back to my music later on. And it very rarely happened. You know what I mean? People would become more and more narrow versions of themselves uh, over time and lose things that kind of kept them broader and whole. Now, if that's happened, there are three things that we see, you know, really helpful to people. One is to reach to a a passion from the past and use that to slingshot forward uh, into Mm -hmm. a group. And so we actually have a great story of a neurosurgeon that reached back to a passion of playing guitar to slingshot into a rock band (laughs) and and (laughs) he, he was, yeah, I mean, he, The funniest thing ever, right? This very brilliant man saying, I'm hanging out with 20 year olds since time in my life, not my best friends but it's the time of my life, right. To kind of keep perspective and other things. So passion from the past, uh, reach back and and reignite uh, relationships that have gone dormant. And Karen Mm -hmm. and I Mm -hmm. have both done that in different ways. and it's been huge for, for our lives, uh, or look to Mm -hmm. pivot some of the things you're already doing and move away from, you know, the, the route you're on. So maybe if you're running, for example, instead of running for a personal best time that has you in isolation or with just a narrow group, think about running with other members of your community or family, whatever, and use that same activity in a way that pulls you into connections, right? That, that, that matter. Um, so so those are a couple things, right? That we see really matter for many people that kind of drifted and, and kind of fell out of groups like that.
1: I was just going to say back to your music. So if you want to reignite that passion, again, the key here is to do with other people in some way, connect with other people. Mm. So it's not that it's bad to do music on your own, but for this really, this kind of inoculation to micro stress, we found that being connected to other people, even in small moments around something that you share, a passion that you share, an interest that you share, um, that was what those 10 percenters did better than the rest of us. So if you're thinking of doing it again, and we encourage you to do it, Rob's doing it himself, um, try to do it in some way with other people so that you have that connection with other people, even if it's just in small moments, small moments are okay too.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And that is a huge emphasis of of your book that we don't really have time to engage with in this particular conversation. But I will tell our audience that there's lots of practical takeaways here. and, And, you know, for all of the high level, amazing research very and you, you talk about multi-dimensionality and and definitely a huge emphasis. The research is showing to, to build networks and re-engage with people. I, I definitely register with that. I think that is an important message. Uh, but I you know, I'm just curious. You know, we hear a lot about, you know, well, like, hey, like if you're feeling stressed, a micro-stress recenter. Like you know, do do some slow breathing, do some meditation. A lot of people, you know, to get into their body, we talk about, uh, hey, do do some yoga. And how what's the research showing about how these things play into micro stress, uh, and do they help to manage it?
1: I'll just, I'll just just say long? that, well, we can both answer this question, but I'll start. Um, those things are good things, they're not bad things, of course. um, but what those are all designed to do is to make you stronger to to take more and more stress, right? No. It's Trying to It's trying to help you. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger, you know, get Mm, through it in that way. So though those are good things, we actually think that um, a more powerful thing to think about doing, a higher leverage thing to think about doing is removing some of the negatives, some of the micro stresses or the interactions specifically, Um, because we know there's years of social science research that tells us a negative can have up to five times the impact of a positive. So conversely, removing a negative can make a material difference in your life right away. So the goal shouldn't be to just be stronger than anyone else so that your internal grit will help you get through again good things and those things are very they're helpful in certain ways but perhaps higher leverage way to start thinking about it is what can i remove that will actually help me get through all of these micro stresses that are kind of flooding in my life yeah i would
2: just add that um what our our work also showed is that it's not just your own internal grit or strength that you're trying to build right The, the resilience actually comes from the connections around you so if you ask 300 people, right? How they made it through difficult stretches. And we'd hear stories from, I didn't get the promotion to my spouse died from pancreatic cancer, you know, and and not then focus on what they did to get through, um, but rather how did they fall back on people in their lives, professionally and personally. If you do that enough, you go know, there are eight really specific things we can get from others. We can get empathy. We can get perspective that this is just a time in life. We can get a path forward from people that have seen this or been this before. Uh, we can get humor right? That just helps us kind of see the absurdity of life in the moment. And what we could see again, is that people that had those connections and knew how and when to tap into them, um, they, they made it through difficult stretches much more easily, um, than people without the relationships. And it wasn't coming from grit or fortitude. It was coming from a, being mindful about, uh, the way, you know, you're, you're tapping into connections around you.
0: Wow. Thank you. That that's, that's amazing. Uh, and I think really helpful. The book is the the micro stress effect. We're going to definitely include all of that in the show notes. You know, I guess my last question for you all is just like if what what would you could you just distill down the overall message into a takeaway that you just feel like you would like our audience to hear and a single takeaway. What must they
1: get? I'll start and then Rob can go in second. I just think the reality that uh, we're swimming in the sea of microstress and they're small and they're tiny, you almost don't notice them, but that small changes can actually make a really big difference. So thinking small is actually really getting on the right path to making your life better. It doesn't have to be sweeping and enormous. So small is good.
2: And I would say proactivity. You know, the interesting thing to us is in many ways, we live in a time where we have more latitude to shape what we do and who we do it with than certainly our ancestors ever did. And we just give it away constantly. And we blame other people versus thinking about where and how can I become proactive in small moments? And that means both shielding from the negative and leaning into the positive. Uh, and, and you know, life can be fantastic uh, if we if we let it.
0: That's right. Yeah. yeah, And I love that You, you guys have it grounded. It's they're micro stresses and it's just realistic, small steps that can begin to mitigate these things. And it's, it's a little bit about what you can remove a little bit about what you, you can add is what I'm hearing. You know, I think some of your key insights are, you know, we can't escape micro stress. Uh, it comes at us quickly all the time. And in these small moments, Uh, It can set off a chain reaction of different uh, different effects. But as you're saying, we can mitigate the impact that it has on us. And, you know, there are so many possibilities for us out there. It's an exciting time to be alive. And yet Mm -hmm. it's
2: it's just an epidemic of stress. Right. Right, and we all we can we can shape that. You know, it's that that one of the things that I worry about uh, is that there is some evidence that when so much of it happens around you, we lose the creativity to see our way out of it. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a lot of the the what's happened to people, right? Is they've just gotten to a point where they say, "I have no choice, I have no hope." And the reality is, we do. (laughs) We have a lot of choice and a lot of hope in small moments, and we can take a lot of action. So that's if I had one thought for myself, that's what I hope people begin to think about and reflect on.
0: Well, that's wonderful. That's a beautiful message. We are really delighted and grateful for you, Karen Dillon, Rob Cross. Thank you for visiting the Big Self Show.
1: Thank you, Chad. So glad to be here. Yeah, thank you.
0: We are all about big ideas and how to integrate them into a more sustainable life to open up our learning level up our self-awareness and consciousness and move from surviving to thriving to flourishing. And I think that what our guest today and all that research is trying to help us see is that we are not just what we do. We're not just our work. And these strategies in this learning is not just meant to bolster you so you can get back in there for another round before you need to learn some more tips and tricks and rinse and repeat. In the next episode, I tell a personal story about how I have experienced some of the very kinds of micro-stresses that our guests described in our conversation today and how I lived to tell about it. So check it out, a real-life application to what we've talked about in theory today. And you know where to find us at BigSelfSchool.com, where we offer one-to-one coaching, as well as trainings and workshops for organizations big and small. Here's to seeing you on our next episode of The Big Self Show.